As we begin, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time. God, we pray that you would be with these words this morning in these few brief moments. Father, we pray that they will be transformative and change us through the power of your spirit at work in this place. Father, we meet you here this morning with great expectation to see what you will do through our lives as you transform and change the world through us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, one of my favorite things that I get to do as a parent is I get to drive my children to school in the mornings. I, I try to make sure that I um, make that a priority in my life, and so every morning um, I'm usually screaming and yelling at about 7.35, um, we need to get out the door. I'm sorry, 7.25, we need to get out the door. And we finally do about 7.35. And so I'm kind of already on edge a little bit, and we're driving to school. And a lot of times we'll talk about what we're thankful for as we get there. But then we get to the school, Andy Woods, great, great school here in Tyler. Um, our daughter has been through Andy Woods. We have um, a kindergartner, a fourth grader right there, there now. And we have loved going there. We've loved the people. Um, but something happens at 7.40 a.m. to those really nice people. Somehow, a demon falls out of the sky, enters their car, and possesses the driver. If you have ever been to a school drop-off line, you know what I'm talking about. And outside of Andy Woods, there is a four-way stop. And there are three directions primarily that are turning into the school. And so, as you know, um, you learn the person who got there first goes, and then the next person, and the next person. And if it's full, you just kind of go around the intersection and you take your turn. And that's my expectation of how it is supposed to work when I pull up to the stop sign. It's your turn to go. It's your turn to go. It's my turn to go. And so about a week and a half ago, we got to the school, and I'm sitting here at the stop, and this person goes, and this person goes, and now it's my turn to go. But the person across from me, didn't want to play by the rules. And when it was my turn to go, they went. And oh, <laughs> that kind of just runs through me a little bit. And so I'm agitated, and I'm not paying attention. And then, after they go, I go ahead and start to pull out. But when I do, I notice the crosswalk lady has walked out into the middle of the, sign, with, of the street with her sign up. And she, um, I, I will say this, she keeps our kids very, very safe. But don't cross her. And don't find yourself in the intersection when you're not supposed to be there and her stop sign is up. And because I was angry at the person in front of me and not watching her, she's there and she's pointing her finger at me and waving her finger. If you go to Andy Woods, you know exactly who I'm talking about. And I was angry. And I know most of you think, well, that's kind of petty and it's not that big of a deal. But, but at the, the core of that entire interaction, the very thing that happened is someone failed to meet my expectations. 
Like, here's the rules that we're supposed to play by. Everyone has the same set of rules. Just do what you're supposed to, and everything's going to work out fine. But what happens so often is there's someone else that does not want to play by the same set of rules. And they fail to meet your expectations. And you find yourself mad. You find yourself angry. And the more that's gone on in your life, the more that anger kind of just comes to the surface. And now, let's just be honest. Most of the things that we deal with in our life are on about that level. There, There are things that should just be in and out and no big deal. But what inevitably happens is many times that that will just be the start for the day. And something else will happen, and something else will happen, and these little things that started to get under your skin really early in the morning build and build and build. And when our expectations go unmet, we're in a place where we're forced to forgive. And we think, well, that's that's not that big of a deal. Just Forget about it and let it go, but for some reason we tend to struggle in doing that. Sometimes it's just our expectations that need to be adjusted. Because we really expect too much of other people. We expect for them to do what we would do in that situation if it were us. And forgiveness becomes necessary. And in that situation, like I said, it should just be kind of water off the back, not a big deal. But then there are those other situations. Those other times when you're forced to forgive. And what you're forced to forgive is something horrific. It's something that keeps you up at night. It's something that every time you see that person, it comes to the forefront of your mind. And it's all that you can think about and it consumes every part of your being. It was the affair Or the divorce. It was how you were treated unfairly. It was what they said about you. And most of you can point to different moments in your life. Where you have been hurt. And some of those hurts in the room this size this morning. Run deep, deep, deep. And I want you to know that your expectations were very fair. And what you feel is more than fair. But the question I want to wrestle with this morning comes from those feelings. Why forgive? If those expectations were fair, and what they did is so wrong, then why in the world would we want to forgive? Why in the world would we want to release someone from what they did When what they did was wrong. When what they did cut so deep. When what they did hurt us so badly. Why in the world would we want to forgive? Well, in the book of Acts, Luke tells this story. And it's a story of a man named Stephen. It's a story that many of you have heard before. But if you have not, I want to share a little bit from Stephen's story. 
starting in chapter 6 of Acts, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia, thank you, sorry, and Asia, Cilicia and Asia, um, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw the face, they saw his face was like the face of an angel. So this is Stephen's account of what's happening in his life as he's trying to share Jesus with people. And these people come and they begin to give false testimony about him. They begin to produce false witnesses. What they are doing to him is wrong. And they're making these accusations. And here is Stephen forced to stand trial really for something that he's not doing. Is he sharing Jesus with people? Yes. Is he speaking these blasphemous words? No. And so they put Stephen on trial. And Stephen begins to speak of what he has seen and what he has heard. He begins to tell the story of Israel, the story of God, and how God is working in this world, ultimately coming to this climax where here is this Jesus, the one the prophet spoke of, but you killed him. You killed the righteous one. And so Stephen is put on display, and he's forced to give this account. So Stephen begins the story in 54 of chapter 7. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There, there's this really interesting, this really cool moment in the story. Where Stephen stops and he says, look, I see heaven open and I see the sun standing at the right hand of God. And I think we've always, I've always had this picture of kind of this doorway opening in, in heaven. And there's Jesus and there's God and you kind of get this glimpse. But I think it's bigger than that. I, I think it would be kind of like being on a mountaintop. 
and you've worked your way up to the top of this mountain, and as you get to the top of the mountain, the mountain is just engulfed in these clouds, and you can't see anything around you. You can barely see your hand in front of your face because the clouds are so thick. But then this storm begins to to blow in, and the wind comes, and it begins to push the clouds away, and then the storm passes, and the clouds are gone, and now you can see. Not, Not just your hands in front of your face, but for miles and miles around, you can see everything that was there the whole time that you just simply weren't aware of before. It's, it's similar to the story of a man named Elisha. And Elisha wakes up one morning, and he's on the run, basically, and the city that he is sleeping in is surrounded by the king of Aram and his men, and these chariots and these horsemen are there, and he wakes up, and the servant goes outside the city, and he looks in terror and fear as he sees everything surrounding, and he goes to Stephen, and he says, what are we going to do? How are we going to survive with all these people standing around, with all these people surrounding us? What in the world are we going to do? And Stephen, it seems, Elisha, very calmly, it seems, just simply replies, Don't worry. The ones who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prays that God would open the eyes of his servant. And God opens his eyes and he looks up and the hills around them are covered with horses and chariots of fire. And there's this sense that comes over them like, we're going to be okay. Or Jacob waking up for a dream and saying, surely God was in this place and I was not aware of it. It's this profound sense that there is more that's happening in this world than simply what we see. There is something else that Stephen sees that seems to give him peace in this moment. Look, I see Jesus, I see the Son of Man, I see this place surrounded, and it's okay. And so then, it says this, at this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now, if you remember the story of Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus says something very similar to what Stephen says, or maybe we could just say 
Stephen says something very similar to what Jesus says, since Jesus said it first. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. I think one of the things that we tend to do is we look at the life of Jesus, is we focus so much in on his divinity. Jesus is God. In this supernatural natural act of forgiving sins. But there is also a humanity side to the story. And I think Luke wants us to pick up something really important. Because the only one that really addresses what Jesus says on the cross, Father forgive them, is Luke. And it's also Luke who writes the book of Acts making sure that it's plain to us that we see this connection between the two. And I wonder why it is that it's so important from a humanity side, not just the divinity side, why is it so important that both Jesus and Stephen forgive the people who are accusing them and killing them before they die? Is that important at all, that they forgive and release these people from their sin before they die? Because both Luke points out, and for Stephen and Jesus, that they do this. And we we say, well, you know, we could never respond like Jesus. We could never respond like Stephen. We we could never be in this place where we are being crucified, where we're being stoned, where we're being killed, where we're being accused wrongfully. And we could just simply say, well, I'm going to forgive you. let's, Let's make sure of something really quick with this. Forgiveness is not saying it didn't hurt. It is not saying it didn't happen or it didn't matter. Forgiveness is not saying there shouldn't be any consequences for what happened. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Because those scars are there. They are deep. In fact, after Jesus is raised, it's the thing that the disciples look to to identify him. It's his scars that he's carried with him into this new world. If we can't see your hands, if we can't see your feet, if we can't see your side... How are we ever? It's his scars that identify him for his disciples. But what forgiveness is saying is, I will not hold this over your head. I will not respond in kind. I will not seek revenge. And Stephen and Jesus come to this point where they have to or are forced to make a decision on whether or not they are going to respond in kind. And it's interesting, at this point, neither of them can respond in kind because of where they are. Jesus nailed to a cross, Stephen being stoned, they don't have the option of responding in kind. And yet still they choose to forgive. For those of us who follow Jesus, who have made a decision that I believe in God's Son, 
And I believe in the power of forgiveness. And we've walked through those waters of baptism. This doorway into a new world. That began when you were raised up out of the water. This new world that you're now a part of. What you are saying is, I want to be like Jesus in every aspect of my life. As Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. But then he goes on to say this. I want to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. What what does it look like to become like Jesus in his death? I, I think it plain and simply looks like this. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because on the other side, there is a new world that is waiting to be created. A world where forgiveness is a possibility in the midst of unsearchable pain and agony. And for Stephen and for Jesus, they understand they cannot step into tomorrow while they're holding on to the pain of the past. New creation can only begin if you carry nothing into it from the past. See, there's this new world that is only a possibility when sin has done its worst. And you can look back into the face of that unspeakable evil and say, Father, I forgive. Because that is the beginning of a new day. A day that's unlike yesterday. A day where Lamech's ideal world, where we have 77 times revenge, is replaced by Jesus' new world where we offer 77 times forgiveness. Where this unspeakable evil is thrust on Jesus, the full weight of sin, and he takes it upon himself. He absorbs all of it, and he responds with, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And when you walk through those waters, and you confess that Jesus is Lord, you're making this decision that your life is going to be transformed into his image. That you're going to become like him in every aspect of everything you want so badly to be like him. That it consumes every part of your being. A new world can only begin when you're ready to let go of the old one. Because if you refuse to let go of what happened in the past, then tomorrow will just be a repeat of today. It's this endless cycle of revenge. And the only way that cycle can come to an end is for someone to choose to stop it. 
and to say, I forgive. I'm not going to hold this over your head. I'm not going to respond in kind. Today is a new day, and love and forgiveness win. Love and forgiveness win the day. If you know nothing else about the Christian faith, know that followers of Jesus call for blessing and forgiveness for their enemies and their accusers rather than cursing and judgment. And Jesus makes loving enemy and those who hurt you central and non-negotiable to this faith. New creation only begins when you carry nothing into it from the past. So then why forgive? Why don't we forgive? Because most of us know that cognitively. Most of us here, we know that until we let go of that past, we can't begin new. We can't start over. We know it because we've experienced it through Jesus as we've entered into those waters and we've come out a new person. And this new day begins because in that water our sins are washed away and we're made new and we're raised into this new life, into this new world that's created through forgiveness. We know it here, but right here it is so, so hard to let go of. Because as we said earlier, those pain, that pain runs so deep into our bones. And we don't want to let go of it. We want to hold on to it. And I think there's an ugly little truth here that's so important for us to grasp. I think the reason we struggle to let go of it is because deep down we don't want to. We want to hold on to our scars. We, we want to hold on to what they did because what they did to us becomes our story. And it becomes our identity. And it becomes who we are. But listen to what happens. When we hold on to what they did, when that becomes our identity, who is not our identity? Jesus. But when someone does the unspeakable to us, when someone hurts us, wounds us, betrays us, and we take on all that sin can do to us. And we release it. We're stepping into this new world. This new world formed by forgiveness. And this identity of Christ becomes who we are. More and more. You know what I'll tell you? I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it won't hurt. But I am saying forgiveness is the only way into new life. And what Jesus did 
through his death and resurrection. At that moment of death, instead of holding on to it, instead of trying to carry it into tomorrow, he releases it. He lets go of it. He says, I forgive you. And on the other side, there is a new day. A day that was not like yesterday. A day where the cycle of revenge comes to an end. Father, forgive. See, when John tells the story of Nicodemus, he, he comes to the part that every one of you have heard and every one of you have known, if nothing else, because of Tim Tebow riding on his eye black during national championship games. John 3, 16. God so loved the world, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And I think in our mind, belief has become something that is such a cognitive process. This mental exercise of saying, yes, I believe in Jesus. But belief in that context, in almost every other time it's used in the New Testament, is not just this cognitive process, but it's also in our being. In everything that we have, everything that we are, lives into that identity. If, if you believe in Jesus... If you believe he is the son of God, if you believe that he died for you, if you believe that he rose again, if you believe in that water your sins are washed away, if you believe, then it changes everything about you. And your life begins to reflect his life. And as Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. But I also want to share in his sufferings and become like him in death. See, forgiveness poses a really powerful question. Is it possible to look into the face of evil? And take on the pain and take on the hurt. Absorb it. And not respond in kind. Is that even possible? But what I can tell you. Is through being transformed through God and his spirit at work in you. You can learn. Through the discipline of prayer of fasting, of reading, to forgive. Then tomorrow truly can be a new day. A, do, a day that was not like the day before. A day where this new world is spoken into being through these powerful words, I forgive. And I think if we were to ask Stephen, what do you want us to see in this story? And we were to respond, well, we see this man of great faith who's trying to be like Jesus and forgives. He would say, oh, man, we missed the point. 
what I want you to see when you read my story for generations to come. I want people to hear my story and say, look, I see Jesus. I see a new world where forgiveness is a possibility. I see a new world that will not be like yesterday. Because Jesus' final words, Father, forgive them, triumph over all evil that could be done. And so the question is simple this morning. Do you want to be a part of that new world? Or do you want to just continue in this one that is broken and decaying and wasting away? Because there is new creation waiting. And that creation is spoken into existence every single day as followers of Jesus continue to forgive. Father, today, may we through your spirit not just simply grasp the difficulty of what Stephen and Jesus said, but Father, may we see that it is the only way into a new tomorrow. It is into a new tomorrow through Jesus' words to us, Father, forgive them, but it's in a new world through our words. Father, forgive. As you teach your disciples to pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Today, may we be more like Jesus. May we join in with the Apostle Paul. We want to know the power of your resurrection. But Father, may we share in your sufferings and become like you in death. Because, Father, that is the only way to new life. Death always precedes resurrection. And so today, Father, raise us up into new life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We offer you this invitation. Come to Jesus. Have your sins washed away. Come and walk through these waters into new life. And let tomorrow be different than today. Because forgiveness is the only possibility of a new world being formed. We're going to have shepherds and ministry staff around the back of the auditorium as well. We would love to pray for you, help you as you follow Jesus. Whatever we can do, come while we stand and sing.